Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 1st, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, Hey, I, oh, I'm still alive. Is it due to TXA? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Salim Razai. He is a community emergency physician in San Antonio, Texas. He's the creator and founder of Rebel EM, a free critical appraisal blog that tries to cut that KT, knowledge translation, gaps of research to clinical bedside. Wow, I like that. Welcome back to the SGEM, my friend. Ken, thanks for having me on. It's been too long. You know, we haven't seen each other in person in so long, but it's great to see each other virtually. I'll take it as a consolation prize. Well, the last time you were on the SGEM as a guest, we were chasing waterfalls. Actually, we were trying to make our waterfalls smaller, right? Because as I recall, we were trying to say that in pancreatitis, the aggressive fluid resuscitation in patients with moderate acute pancreatitis was actually more harmful. And so we were trying to minimize the amount of fluids we were giving to patients based on that study. Yeah, we didn't need to flood them with mildly salty pasta water. Hey, Salim, did you know that it's Canada's birthday, eh? I had no idea, eh? <laughs> Why would you? Yes, July 1st is Canada's birthday. Hey, at least I know when your day of independence is, July 4th. But then again, there was an epic movie about that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I need to do better. I need to be more global in my knowledge. So I, I'll add that to the list of things that I make sure I message you every July 1st. Well, you know what? It's easy for me to remember that Canada is 156 years old today. And the reason it's easy to remember is because I was a centennial baby. That means I was born in 1967 on Canada's centennial. Ken, you don't look a day over 31. <laughs> oh, now people aren't going to trust whatever we say. All right, let's get on with the case, my friend. <laughs> All right, so a 48-year-old man involved in a motor vehicle collision is being evaluated by paramedics. He was entrapped in his vehicle for over one hour, had an initial blood pressure of 78 over 46 millimeters of mercury, and appeared to have a seatbelt sign with deformities to bilateral lower extremities. His Glasgow Coma Scale, or GCS score, was 13, with obvious head trauma as well. So emergency medical services calls in ahead of time to warn the facility that they are 20 minutes out, to give report about the patient, and to ask whether they should give dun 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 tranexemic acid pre-hospitally. Ooh, scary sound effects. We spare no expense on the SGEM. We have looked at the use of TXA many times on the SGEM. Most of the times, the randomized control trials we critically appraised did not demonstrate superiority for their primary outcome. And this has included things like postpartum hemorrhage, that was the woman's trial, gastrointestinal bleeding, halt it, intracranial hemorrhage, TITCH2 and ULTRA, isolated traumatic brain injuries, and that was CRASH3. And then we also looked at pre-hospital TBIs and one study, NOPAC on epistaxis. Now, we know there's some evidence of efficacy for TXA in epistaxis, and I believe you covered that on SGEM number 55, SGEM number 210, and SGEM number 395, which I highly recommend people go back and listen to. But then there's also this CRASH-2 trial from 2010, 
which you reviewed with one of our good friends, Anand Swami Nathan, on SGEM number 80. And that classic practice-changing paper showed a 1.5% absolute decrease in death in trauma patients receiving TXA versus placebo. And although that number doesn't sound big, that translated to a number needed to treat of 66. Yeah, 66 people to be treated to save one life. And so I think that this really was a practice-changing paper. It moved the needle. It was more common and it was for people to give TXA in trauma patients, and it was incorporated into a lot of protocols. But despite the result of CRASH-2, many clinicians still remain skeptical of the benefits of TXA in trauma patients. One of the major criticisms of CRASH-2 was it was performed in under-resourced trauma systems, and therefore it may not be generalizable to the care that is provided in advanced trauma systems. So, Salim, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? Exactly that criticism you brought up. In advanced trauma systems, does the pre-hospital use of TXA increase the rate of survival with a favorable neurologic outcome in patients at risk for trauma-induced coagulopathy. And the reference for this? Is the Patch Trauma Investigators and ANZIC's clinical trial group, Pre-Hospital Tranexemic Acid for Severe Trauma, published in New England Journal of Medicine, 2023. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population included in this trial? So these were adult patients, which they defined as greater than 18 years of age, with suspected severe traumatic injuries at risk for trauma-induced coagulopathy, which was assessed using this thing called coagulopathy of severe trauma, or COAST, score that could receive TXA within three hours of injury. And Ken, I've never actually heard of this COAST score till this trial, and I think you're going to put a link in the show notes to exactly what that COAST score is. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes, but we're six and a half minutes into the show. It's time for a dad joke. I have been coasting through clinical practice for the last 28 years without knowing the coast score. All right, so what's the <laughs> intervention? So this was tranexemic acid, one gram IV over 10 minutes as a bolus, followed by another one gram over eight hours. And what did they compare it to? 0.9% saline in the same volume and the same way as they gave the TXA over 10 minutes as a bolus and then an infusion over eight hours. Don't think I didn't notice that you didn't call it normal saline because I've heard that there's nothing normal. There is nothing normal about normal saline. It's pasta water is what it is. <laughs> That's another right. SGEM episode. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, a totally, totally different podcast. All right. So uh, what was the uh, primary outcome? Was survival with a favorable functional outcome at six months assessed using another score called the Glasgow Outcome Scale hyphen extended or GOS hyphen E. And how about their secondary outcomes? Pretty reasonable death with uh, within 24 hours, 28 days, and six months after injury. And how about safety? Risk of thromboembolic phenomenon, including deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, or stroke. Yeah, and that's something that people are always interested in knowing about because TXA, there's been a concern, and I don't think it's really borne out, but there's been a concern, can it increase thromboembolic events? 
And then the T of the Peacot. What type of study was this? All the words we love to hear, Ken. International, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. All right. The author's conclusions. Quote, among adults with major trauma and suspected trauma-induced coagulopathy who were being treated in advanced trauma systems, pre-hospital administration of tranexamic acid followed by an infusion over eight hours did not result in a greater number of patients surviving with a favorable functional outcome at six months than placebo, end of quote. All right, let's go through those quality checklist questions for RCTs. First one, the study population. Did it include or focus on those patients in the emergency department? Well, that answer is going to be no, because this study clearly was focusing on the pre-hospital system. Uh, and as you know, the, the whole continuum from pre-hospital to the emergency department to the ICU or the inpatient unit and discharge and follow-up, we're all part of this continuum. So while they didn't focus right in on the emergency department, you know where these patients are coming to. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're going to be seeing us. So not a big hit there. The patients, were they adequately randomized? They sure were. Randomization was in a one-to-one -one ratio with the randomization sequence created by computer-generated randomization stratified according to national or state jurisdiction and initial score on the Glasgow Coma Scale which their division was less than nine or greater than or equal to nine. And did they conceal the randomization? I feel like they did. Treatment was prepared in an opaque foil parcel with a tamper-proof seal, and each pack included two identical 10 ml glass ampules. Yeah, we kind of get critical at times if people say it's in an opaque envelope and we're wondering if people can, you know, hold it up to a bright light or can they tamper with the seal and those types of things. So they did a really good job of making sure that that randomization process was concealed to preserve that randomization so you can get into selection bias or gaming the system. The patients, were they analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? In other words, an intention to treat analysis. Yeah, they absolutely were. And the study patients, were they recruited consecutively to try to avoid selection bias? So, Ken, I don't know. Um, I looked in the main paper. I looked in all the supplemental stuff. I just couldn't find where it was consecutive or not consecutive. But I have my inkling that it's not because they only recruited 1,310 patients from 15 EMS systems and 21 hospitals over seven years. So either they're just not seeing a lot of trauma, as you said earlier when we weren't recording, a night in Chicago, or they weren't clearly consecutively enrolled. But we can't say definitively one way or the other because it's just not explicitly written. Yeah, so we're just unsure at this point in time. The patients in both groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yeah, I think they were. They look similar in terms of demographic and clinical characteristics at baseline. And so now we're going to get into the masking. Were all participants, patients, clinicians, outcome assessors, were they all unaware of group allocation? The answer is yes. And they explicitly say this in the paper. All trial personnel were unaware of trial group assignments. And did they treat everybody uh, equally except for that intervention of providing TXA? It appears so when you go through some of the tables of what each of the groups got. And how about the follow-up? Was it complete? 
It absolutely was. They they only had a 13% loss to follow up, which is obviously greater than the 80% that's required. Yeah, we, we put this artificial sort of thing of 80%. Uh, and I've had conversations with some really smart people like my friend, Dr. Heather Murray, and she always gets a little concerned if that delta, if that number of loss to follow up um, starts getting into bigger than maybe the effect size that we were expecting to see. And you know, in this study, you know, for things like mortality, we're not talking about the neurologic outcome, but the things like mortality, you know, if loss to follow-up is more than 1.5%, it just raises uncertainty. All right. All patient important outcomes. Do you think they were considered? Yeah. They looked at neurologic outcomes as well as mortality, although mortality was secondary. And then they also looked at safety outcomes. So yes, absolutely. So the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? So you kind of alluded to this, but the answer is going to be no. The authors were looking for a between group difference of nine percentage points in the survival with favorable functional outcome, and they just didn't quite get there. And the final question, question number 12, how about financial conflicts of interest? No, which I'm always happy to see. So study was funded by a government organization as opposed to a pharmaceutical company. And as you always say, Ken, even if it is funded by a pharmaceutical company, doesn't mean something bad was happening, but it just raises that skeptical eyebrow. Oh my goodness. And you've got some of the best eyebrows out there in FOMED. <laughs> Stop doing it now. All right. So let's get to the <laughs> results section. They included, like you said, just over 1300 patients. The mean age was 44 years, 70% were male, 92% had blunt trauma, and the median injury severity score was 29. And I highlighted that blunt trauma of 92% because, you know, I think that's probably similar to what I see in Canada because we don't see a lot of penetrating trauma. And I've worked in an emergency department for almost 28 years now, and I've seen a nice round number of gunshot wounds. That's right, zero in 28 years. And so most of the trauma we see is blunt, but I suspect that that may not be what you see in the United States. It's absolutely not. It's a, it's a little more, unfortunately, evenly balanced, uh, depending on where you work. But uh, I work at several community ER shops, and some are out in the country, so we see a lot of blunt trauma type stuff and absolutely no stabbings and shootings. And then some are in the core of the city where we do get the shootings and the stabbings. So it's it's a little more evenly distributed, unfortunately, here. All right. Well, let's let's hear what the key result was. So that primary outcome, there was no statistical difference in good neurologic outcome or functional outcome, I believe is what they their wording was, at six months. Yeah, that primary outcome was, did they have a good function at six months? Can you give us some actual numbers? Sure. So in the TXA group, that good functional outcome at six months was 53.7%. For placebo, was 53.5%. Yeah, so basically 54% in both groups. And the risk ratio that they gave was 1.00. And it had a tight 95% confidence interval around that point estimate of one. But they did have a number of secondary outcomes, which I think are interesting. So let's go through the secondary outcomes. The first one was, how about mortality within the first 24 hours? Yeah, so for TXA, it was 9.7%. For placebo is 14.1%. Yeah, and that gave a statistical 
significant difference for their risk ratio. The point estimate was 0.69, although the confidence intervals around that point estimate were rather wide, so that should increase our uncertainty of where the true number may lie. How about the 28-day mortality or mortality at one month? Yeah, exactly. TXA, 17.3%. Placebo, 21.8%. And the point estimate wasn't as great. It was uh, a risk ratio of 0.79, but the confidence interval was starting to tighten up a bit. Now let's project out to that six-month outcome. And that's where the primary outcome was looking at function, but they also did a mortality outcome at six months. So for TXA, 19% versus placebo, 22.9%. Yeah, and so for all three mortality outcomes, whether it was early, mid, or late, so 24 hours, one month, or six months, the point estimate always favored the TXA group. It was only at the six-month number that that risk ratio, which was still in favor of TXA, that 95% confidence interval then crossed over that number of one. And so it's not statistically significant. That doesn't mean it isn't clinically significant. It just means it's not statistically significant. And you can see why by six months, a number of things could have happened way beyond that bolus dose of TXA and then an eight hour infusion of TXA, you know, people die for other reasons. And, and so the statistics may not work out showing a benefit from something that was done six months earlier. But you did mention that uh, you were happy to see they did safety outcomes looking for thromboembolic events. What did they find with their safety outcomes? I mean, I think anytime you're talking about messing with the coagulation cascade, this is going to be something people worry about. And so in this case, there was no statistically significant difference in safety outcomes, which included, again, deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, or stroke. All right, time to get to my favorite section where we get to talk nerdy. Our favorite section. Well, I like to be inclusive and I'm (laughs) glad you like it as much as I do then. So we're going to talk nerdy and we're going to have five points. I'm going to, I'm going to lead off with that primary outcome because I think that's an important thing. That primary outcome. Why did they choose the favorable functional outcome at six months using this GOSE? Would giving something to a patient in a trauma situation, a one-time dose of a drug, have a significant impact at six months? I'm not saying it can't. I'm just saying... Okay, that's what they picked. And TXA, it's a lysine analog that stabilizes the clot in the short term. So you think that maybe the short term things would be more relevant. You can go to those secondary outcomes. And we did see a a statistically significant benefit in mortality at 24 hours and 28 days, although it wasn't statistically significant by that six month mark. So you could argue, well, you've got to survive. You've got to be alive to have a good functional outcome six months from now. But you could also say that mortality isn't the most patient-oriented outcome because you want to not only survive, but you want to thrive. You want to have good neurologic function. So you can see how it gets back to that, eh, it all depends. You have to make a choice, and they made a choice, and then we just interpret the choice that they made. Yeah, the second nerdy thing was the dosing, which 
you know, I find fascinating. So, you know, a lot of the literature on tranexamic acid and trauma, as well as other indications, looks at this one gram over 10 minutes, followed by one gram over eight hours. But I think we're starting to see some more evidence now that maybe a two gram bolus over 10 minutes will kind of avoid us having to give that follow-up infusion. And as a matter of fact, if you look at a lot of studies, that second dose oftentimes gets forgotten. Now, there's many military and civilian trauma centers, mine included, by the way, down in San Antonio, that have moved to the two gram over 10 minute dosing. Now, the reason for that is it doesn't appear to portend any worse harms. It doesn't certainly make outcomes any worse. But for this study, which is what we're talking about, it's unclear whether that two gram bolus in this trial would have really made a difference in that primary outcome for all the reasons you just talked about for nerdy point number one. Yeah. So it just leads to sort of a situation where we're unsure. We're unsure. We're uncertain. I would, of course, say the time to adopt something like going to a two gram bolus without an infusion would be when we have sufficient evidence that it actually has a benefit. So adopting into protocols can sometimes legitimize it. And then it's very hard to remove things. And then we would have to go, oh, okay, well, what's, what's the evidence for the two grams? And you'll go, well, you know, we've got some small studies. Hmm. Okay. All right, but I'm going to get into nerdy point number three, and this is about protocol violation. A third of the patients had protocol violations in this trial. 17% of the patients assigned to receive placebo received open-label TXA, and 21% of patients assigned to receive TXA did not receive that second dose. So that leads, you know, that points back to nerdy point number two. And so it's unclear where this bias you know, this something that systematically moves us away from the truth, would it push us towards the null or would it push us towards superiority? Um, it's just messy. And you know what? Science is messy. And this is the part of interpretation. Sometimes you have to get down into the weeds and go, what really happened? And you can do a per protocol analysis and then say, okay, with a per protocol, who actually got the drug and who actually got the placebo? But that can overestimate the effect size because once you put this into the wild, you know, you throw that out there, you're going to get people getting TXA that wouldn't have fit the inclusion criteria. You're going to get people that didn't get that second dose infusion, which was part of the protocol. And so that effect size will go down and that means the number needed to treat would go up to see that potential benefit. So nerdy point number four, this is the real conundrum, I think, of all the nerdy points we're talking about is we're going to increase survival, but there's a chance that you could have worsened functional neurologic outcome at six months. And so it's like taking a primary outcome that's not statistically significant, but has trends toward harm, and then taking these secondary outcomes that are statistically significant, what do we go about doing with that? So although the 24-hour and 28-day mortality were secondary outcomes, they're still statistically significant outcomes in both groups. And additionally, the 28-day mortality in this trial, which you already went over the relative risk of 0.79 with the 95% confidence interval of 0.63 to 0.99, when you compare that to previous evidence, and specifically I'm talking about CRASH-2, very similar, relative risk 0.91 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.85 to 0.97. And so we see a slightly better risk reduction 
but a larger 95% confidence interval. It seems to me from a biophysiologic plausibility standpoint, TXA has its greatest effect on reducing deaths in the short term. That's what the medication does. That's what it's made for. But we end up seeing this greater neurologic disability at six months, which I was just talking about. So the real question, Ken, is would we withhold a treatment that saves lives in the short term because we know that survivors may be more severely disabled at six months? Well, you know, just to be clear, there was no difference statistically in the six-month favorable functional outcome. Correct. So that what you're saying is sort of like the paramedic two trial with epinephrine, where you saw more ROSC and more survival to hospital and stuff like that, but not necessarily more people with good neurologic outcome. And so that delta, that difference of the people that would survive, you were increasing the number of people with poor survival, even though the two groups are very similar and not statistically different because the TXA group didn't have worse functional outcome at six months. Correct. Yeah. So I just want to make sure we're not apologize. No, no, no. It's just, we want to be sure that people understand what we're saying when we're saying, okay, we we're having more survivors in the TXA group, but does that mean we're just increasing a a greater cohort that may have been in the um, not great functional outcome? But at the end of the day, both groups had about the same functional outcome, 54% at six months. 100%. All right. Well, you said number four was important. I said number one was really important because it was about the primary outcome. And we know what primary means. But at the end of the day, number five might be the most important because is it going to change clinical practice? Will this move the needle? It's a relatively small trial with 1,300 patients from 21 hospitals over seven years. And I'm saying relative because I'm comparing it to CRASH-2, which had about 20,000 patients. So it's more than an order of magnitude less number of patients. And so in a much larger trial that mainly came from developing nations with not as robust trauma centers, showed a 1.5% absolute mortality reduction. And then you get a smaller trial done in more developed nations with more advanced trauma systems saying for their primary outcome, which was different, functional outcome, at six months, they didn't find superiority. So we're accepting the null. This is how science works, right? So do the results of a smaller trial trump the results of a significantly larger randomized control trial? Oh, you know what my answer is going to be? It all depends. Each study needs to be considered with their individual limitations and then how we're going to apply it will depend on your clinical situation. And remember, evidence-based medicine, the literature informs our care, it guides our care, but it doesn't dictate our care. We still need to use our noodle. We still need to use our clinical judgment. And of course, if the patient's able to be engaged in this, ask them about their preferences and what they value. Um, And so I'm unsure if this will really change clinical practice. I'm thinking that, you know, when I'm working in a Northern Canadian site where the trauma center is far away, I have more confidence that that TXA can have a impact, a significant impact, an important impact. And, you know, if I'm right next to the level one trauma center where they can get source control quickly, is TXA really going to have much of an impact? My answer, of course, is 
I don't know, but clinicians are going to have to make those decisions. And so I think that this will probably not change clinical practice for most people. I'm not saying they're going to give it or not give it. I'm going to say, I don't think it's enough to move the needle one way or the other. But we need to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So we agree with the author's conclusion that there was no superiority for good neurologic outcomes at six months in patients receiving tranexamic acid who are being treated in advanced trauma systems. And how about giving us an SGEM bottom line? How can you sum this all up into one sentence? There's more uncertainty on whether TXA should be routinely given to all trauma patients being treated in an advanced trauma system. Yeah, and there's a couple of important words in there. It's about certainty and uncertainty, right? We're not sure of anything usually. I have possible beliefs and certainties on a spectrum is what I'm getting at. And then the whole idea of routinely giving it, and again, to all patients or no patients. How about we give it to the patients who we think will benefit based on the clinical situation and where we're practicing and their values and preferences? All right, what about a case resolution? So you tell the paramedics, since the patient is at risk of trauma-induced coagulopathy within three hours of injury and hypotensive, to go ahead and give the tranexemic acid. All right, now here's the difficult question. Because I've already said what I'm probably going to do when I was talking about nerdy point number five. But now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this up with you. How are you going to clinically apply this, this patch trauma trial? Yeah, I honestly, I'm with you. I, it doesn't move the needle much for me. I was already giving tranexemic acid pre-hospitally and to my trauma patients that met the criteria of less than three hours. It's unlikely that this much, much smaller trial is going to change much in terms of my clinical management. I think data on tranexemic acid and major trauma has been pretty consistent demonstrating improved short-term mortality uh, outcomes, and it has an excellent safety profile. And I think, Ken, the question is really for the listeners. And I think for those who are convinced of the efficacy of TXA, they're going to just keep giving the meds, which is the, the camp I fall in. And for those who are more skeptical about it, they're just going to continue to question the potential benefit of TXA. Sounds like we need a Twitter poll on this on Tuesday, and we'll throw that up there on Tuesday and see what people are going to do, see if it's going to move the needle at all. And I think it'll have to be, are you, you know, you already give it and now you're going to continue to give it. You already give it and you're not going to give it. You're not going to give it and now you're going to give it and you're not going to give it and you're still not going to give it. So those would be the four sort of questions. Be interesting to see the results of that. Oh, yeah. What are you going to tell the patient? So tranexemic acid has consistently been shown to decrease short-term mortality across multiple studies, which gives you the best chance for recovery. However, it doesn't seem to improve longer-term functional outcomes. Functional outcomes could potentially be improved, however, with further rehabilitation. All right, that sound means we have some exciting news. As Salim and I were preparing for this episode, we reached out to our good friend, Dr. Simon Carley at St. Emlyn's. We love those people at St. Emlyn's. And asked Simon, 
what would you do now that the patch trial is out? Is this going to change your practice? How are you going to clinically apply it? What would Simon do? And you know what I say? When Simon speaks, we should listen. He is a wise man and we should listen to him and what he says. He came out in 2020 I think it was with Rick Bodie as well. And they came out with a great article about how we should approach this COVID global pandemic that we've just been through. And it was about how evidence-based medicine was more important than ever. And it's, it's just one of the most fabulous papers that I've ever read. And so when Simon speaks, we should listen. Hi, Ken, and hi, Salim, and thank you so much for the time to come along and talk on the SGM podcast, our favourite critical appraisal podcast in the world. Now, the patch trial, it's something we've looked at at St. Emlyn's, and we've looked at a lot of TXA trials over the years. We're really interested about this one. We always love good science, and this is good science. It helps us with the debate about whether to give TXA to our major trauma patients. So what's the St. Emlyn's view? Well, the St. Emlyn's view is that this is a good trial, um, that the primary outcome doesn't show a difference, but we've got some questions about the nature of the primary outcome, a bit like you. Is six months really the right outcome for a drug which is designed to control bleeding issues? And actually, is six months too soon for a lot of our major trauma patients who we know can develop and actually improve beyond that six months? So was it too early if you're just looking at functional outcomes? The bottom line for us is that for bleeding patients, for our major trauma patients in the emergency department and pre-hospital care, TXA improves mortality in that respect. And to be honest, if you're going to improve functional outcomes in the future, in six months and nine months, 12 months later on, with rehab, etc., etc., the first thing you've got to do is be alive. And so we think TXA is still the drug to give in major trauma because it saves lives. So now you know what Simon says. Okay, time for the Keener contest. Last week's winner was Sean Murphy. He's a physician assistant in Perry Sound, Ontario. He knew that fentanyl can cause a stiff chest called wooden chest syndrome. Sean, we are going to send you a cool skeptical prize. What's the question this week, Salim? Yeah, probably a little more straightforward, but who was the inventor of tranexemic acid? If you know the answer, then just send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive one of the cool skeptical prizes. Well, thanks, Salim, for coming on and uh, doing this show with me on Canada Day. It was great to be here, Ken. I always love doing these with you. Well, until next time, my friend, can you read the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.